wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. You can find our social media links and many other Bleeding Daylight episodes at bleedingdaylight.net. My guest today has turned tragedy into triumph. She's used her own life difficulties to help others. I'll introduce you in just a moment. As you're listening, consider who else would benefit from hearing this episode and let them know where to find Bleeding Daylight. We all experience the highs and lows of life, but for some people, the valley experiences seem to be deeper. That can start a downward spiral or be a catalyst that sparks something remarkable. For today's guest, Sherry Briggs, life at times has been traumatic and difficult, but out of the trials, there have been some remarkable outcomes. Sherry is the founder of Bridge of Hope San Diego, an organisation dedicated to strengthening families through transition and a grief support ministry from under his wings. Sherry, welcome to Bleeding Daylight. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For many of us, we remember our childhood home as a safe place. And while it may not have been perfect, it is a place where we were accepted and loved. But what about for you? What was growing up like for you? Well, it was a very uh, difficult home life. Um, My father was a very abusive alcoholic and my mother extremely codependent. In that relationship, it was very violent um, in my home most of the time. And at the same time, um, I grew up in a cult. My mom started attending a church slash we now know as a cult. Um, when I was four years old. So I was raised in that as well. So it was a very confusing upbringing, (laughs) to say the least. Certainly. And and did your mother start attending that because she was looking for some sort of escape from this life that she may have felt trapped in? I really believe that's true. But I also believe that she really needed, she wanted somebody to tell her what to do. I think she was overwhelmed in life, didn't know where to start, was uh, feeling the effects of the alcoholism. And she was definitely becoming, I'd say, sicker than the two. And um, having um, kind of a controlling leadership was something I think that she was hoping to find. And then also, you know, there was a lot of community in there. It, believe it or not, there's a lot of people that were following along in the same place with her. Um, And so there was community there. And I think she needed that as well. Yeah. So she was definitely vulnerable to being led astray to false teaching at that point in our lives. It must have been difficult for you because this is the place where you're growing up. So you had no Mm -hmm. understanding that this is not normal. When was it for you? At what age do you think it was that you started to realize that the life that was being lived under the roof of your home was not the normal life that others around you were experiencing? There's kind of two parts to that. At 17, I did hit a very deep bottom, like a very troubled place that I believe God really allowed me to hit that because I always loved God. I always believed in him. 
my devotion to the church was my love for him. You know, I didn't see the, I didn't understand the difference at that time. So I hit this place of just desperation. And at 17 years old, I um, went as far away as I could. Somebody had given me a place to go in New York City, actually, which is all the way at the other end of the country. But I went there to find I said to God, you know, if you're real, you need to show up because I felt like it was life or death for me at that point. I was so miserable and he showed up. I had a full on born again salvation experience where suddenly, you know, reading in Galatians, just that my eyes were open to what Jesus did for me on the cross and everything changed for me in that moment of salvation. But I was still tied in with the cult. You know, I didn't know that difference yet. I went back to San Diego, a born again believer, thinking I could raise the dead, heal the sick, you know, give sight to the blind. It was so on fire. And um, the church leadership at that point pulled me aside and told me I needed to be quiet. And that was 20 elders. And what they said goes And as far as the way they run things there, you know. So you submit to that. And I did. But then a year later, the church was praying after the founder, John Robert Stevens of the, the Church of the Living Word, that's what it was called. He passed away and the whole church came together from all over the country and did a three-day prayer vigil praying. And at that moment, I heard that they believed he would raise on the third day because he was Jesus Christ. And so at that point, I, my mom, thank God, my brother as well, who was just two years older than me, uh, he was 20 years old at that point, an elder in the church. The lights came on for all three of us. And we, along with probably a third of the congregation, left. So that was the beginning of that being exposed as far as deception and then starting out and trying to figure out what ever, you know, ha what have I known has ever been true and starting to be forming relationships in the outside world, so to speak, because we were only allowed to be connected to those inside pretty much. But then at the same time, with the alcoholism part, that was a whole other piece because growing up in a very abusive, twisted situation was very normal for me as far as, you know, that type of trauma. And that, that was a long process of undoing all of that. But you know, I'd say 19 was the beginning of a journey of the peeling back, God healing, exposing things, and kind of getting to those hard wiring systems that were faulty in me. <laughs> it was years becoming aware and healing. I'm interested in this process of leaving a cult because you're saying that about a third of, of that church or that, that cult just broke away and said, no more, we're, we're leaving. I guess there would be different responses there that some would say, well, this whole thing of religion, this whole thing of God, it, it's all fake because we, we've seen it fake here. And yet there's a different response for you because you have had an encounter with God. Mm -hmm. What do you think that difference is for those who – leave all forms of faith behind and those who actually say this wasn't the way, but there is a way? It's a good question. I just feel so much grace. I don't know. I'm so grateful, so thankful that I had the response I did to go deeper to find out truth. Now, I can't say I did that 100%. I think to my brother too, it took us a while you know what I mean? Um, to actually go, okay, wait, what, what way is up here? But having had that born again experience so soon before that, I think that was a big piece of it. I really don't know the answer. I just think it's so tragic that people end up 
you know, tying in the church hurt with God because they are so different that God had nothing to do with that. So for him to get the fall, you know, for him to, to be included in that is so sad. That's the tragedy of church hurt. My, you know, some people, it just takes a long time of healing and, and, and there's just parts of them that are just going to, it's just going to take time for some people to decide, yeah, that wasn't God, you know, and that this is who the real Jesus is. I think too, my, the word of God is a dividing line and it was for me. And I think I had, I think that was a big help because even though the scriptures were manipulated and twisted in, in the, the church that I grew up in, the word of God is living and powerful, you know, and sharpening a two-edged sword. And it does divide between soul and spirit. And I think because that word is, does not return void, I think that word will do that work eventually in somebody's heart to where they will see the real Jesus. But I, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I think, God, why me? How did I come out hungering for you? My brother actually took about 10 years he ended up going, it was funny, he just went right into Bible college after that and decided, I'm going to I'm going to learn original Hebrew, Greek, and I'm going to learn scriptures the correct way and be able to teach pastors the true word of God based on truth, right? Because um, he saw how deceived we were. So he went about that route and become a studier in that way um, so he could help others not be deceived. But it took him about two, 10 years to even step back into a church. You, you've come to this point of leaving this behind and starting to unravel the lies that you had been told. Mm-hmm. And you're coming from a place where growing up was not easy. And yet very quickly, you began your own family, didn't you? Yes, yes. Once I had left, I was... Uh, starting out on my own, like I very confused still, you know, but knew that I had found Jesus, um, but still was kind of wandering. I ended up in a relationship. I got pregnant with my son, Nathan, and my son's birth and my being a single mother is what really caused me to put my foot fully on the path to follow Christ. I knew that I did not want to repeat any generational craziness, and I knew the best way to love him and give him the best shot is to walk with Jesus 100%. It was his life that you know really called me to surrender, and that is where I really began to see and discover the, the, the Father's love in a way that I had never before. I just think I was beginning to experience spiritual adoption and being reparented by my father who was taking care of me and my son. I mean, I was waiting on tables. I needed help. I needed practical help. I needed a bed, uh, pots and pans and things for our home. And God began to provide those things for me. And as he did, I began to see how much he loves me and cares for me, but not just me, just people. He loves and cares for people in such a practical way. And then that's really what drew me to trust him and in, in that healing began to happen even in a deeper level in my heart because he, he was so intimately acquainted with me and my son and our needs. And then after a couple of years of just growing in Christ, I met my husband, Brewster. We've been married now almost 30 years. And we had, he had two boys. I had my son, Nathan, and we had two girls together. He's a wonderful, healthy California surfer. 
who loves Jesus. <laughs> yeah, so that's where that began and my life began to really grow and change. It was a, just a beautiful place of having a healthy, loving home that I never took for granted for one day because I grew up in the complete opposite environment. And the only way I can say I could even uh, love that and appreciate that like I did was because of my upbringing. There is such a stark difference between your growing up and the way that your son and, and then the other children in, in this relationship are, are growing up. I'm wondering what it was like for you in dealing with that sense of the scripture talking about father so often, and yet you hadn't had a great example of father. How difficult was it for you to transition and think, ah, he wasn't a perfect father, and yet I now worship a perfect father? It's been a walk. You know, we, we're, on a, we're on a walk with the Lord, right? It's a journey and it's not like a one and done. And I'll have to tell you, fast forward from being married and starting my life with my family, I definitely had an even a deeper encounter when I was 47 years old. Now that's only 11 years ago, where I definitely experienced the spirit of adoption happen. It was the most incredible experience. So I had been experiencing the love of, the love of a father. I'd been experienced restoration. I'd been growing in my faith. I'd been in ministry now, you know, and here I end up having an encounter at a conference. I went to a Christian conference and I was in my hotel room at night by myself, just praying and crying out to God, feeling there was something missing in my walk. Lord, you know, you've done so many things. My life is so full, yet what is this emptiness? I still feel. It was the last day I was there. It was 15 minutes before checkout of the, you know, from the hotel. And all of a sudden I I just heard the Holy Spirit in my just in my heart, my, you know, that voice. I heard, I am adopting you. You are my daughter. You are not your father's daughter. And the 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 adoption papers are signed with my son's blood. And you know, when you hear the Lord speak, everything changes because at that moment I I feel like I receive what the scriptures talked about, the spirit of adoption. Something radically changed. It was like a paradigm shift. Even at that point in my life, I was like, whoa, I'm adopted. Like it really hit me. And I actually got super excited. I couldn't believe it. I was adopted. Like my my earthly father was not my father. Like this is who my dad is, God Almighty. <laughs> and he adopted me. The next thing I hear, which is sounds to me kind of probably crazy for some people, but I heard, let's go get some ice cream because that's what dads do. And I was like, what? We're going to get ice cream? You know, this is incredible. And that, I think even at that point, just began this whole other experience in my life. I guess I was ready for is to be fathered even in a deeper way and to be loved and to know that that's my dad, that that other man who I have great compassion for, was not my father. But my father is good and kind and gentle and patient and loving and doesn't, he likes me too. And he loves spending time with me. And it was just, a, it was, that was a whole nother revelation. So I could say it's been years in the making. And you mentioned that along the track there, you, you're involved in ministry. Tell me how that began. That really, the seed planted in that was from my my experience raising my son and, and, and God meeting those practical needs I shared with. 
pots, pans, a bed, and things like that. I took note of that. I also took note of the the new Christians and people I was meeting in my community now that I was going back to church and things like that, that they would say things like, hey, I hope that works out and I'll pray for you for that. And oh yeah, you know, we'll we'll keep you in mind. Kind of like what Jesus says, don't say be warm to be filled. I just took note of that. I was like, people will say things, but it's really, I just need a bit. You know, I just need a bet. <laughs> I just need a couple of things here. And so I began to really think about that and just the power of those needs being met and what that really does to person that's really hurting and, and you know, just needs somebody to come alongside. You know, I got married to my husband. We jumped into ministry, a recovery ministry, and I we, we, we ended up opening a home, a woman's home for women in recovery that were coming off the streets, getting off drugs, meeting Jesus, getting clean, born again, all that. And I began to see, oh man, just that practical need that needs to be met. If they get out of a program, they've met Jesus, they're able to get their children back, they're ready to move forward, but yet they need these practical things. I began to see that too as part of this vision of a bridge where we help women like myself needed help with practical things they need to start over. And included in that is community and people to walk with them. So these this kind of began a vision and, and journaling and writing and dreaming about this. And then... Um, our family was in a really big car crash in 1999. That is kind of a long story, but we were all spared from this horrific car crash. We all flew from the car. We landed on the highway after flying over 50 feet. And at that point, we experienced the supernatural radical power encounter with God in, in saving our family and his spirit being so present with us that it began to, we just began to say, God, what do you want us to do? You know, you spared our lives for a reason. What do you want us to do? So those early visions that I just explained of meeting those practical needs began to be journal entries of this place that I saw, this beautiful place. I'd be woken at three o'clock in the morning and start to write these visions of this place where there was things that people needed to start over. There's even a set of roller skates I remember writing about. There's just a garden and play area and food and all these things. And I, I journaled for years. And it was something I felt like God was giving me, but I kept it to myself and I just prayed and pondered it. In 2004, I was at a prayer meeting and these women said, can we pray for you? And they had a word of knowledge for me and they saw in the spirit in their prayers exactly what God had been giving me in my journals. They just saw it so perfectly. And they said, does this make sense to you? And I said, oh my gosh, yes. So went home, told my husband like, oh gosh, we got to do this. And what are we doing? He said, I said, well, we just got to, I don't know, but we're going to help women with things they need to start over like I was helped. And and I did not know where to begin. I, I asked the Lord, do we find the things they need and then find the women or find the women and then find those practical items? And the Holy Spirit really said, don't worry about it. That was in 2000. And, well, in 2005, we started in our garage. Slowly, the Lord one by one paired us with women who were needing this type of help and ministry. And it was one by one. Today in 2023, it's been 18 years next month. We serve over 1,500 families a month with food. We have over 500 families coming through our clothing closet. 
We serve 40 families a month from agencies all throughout San Diego County that are referred to us with furniture, all household items, clothing and food that are families that are starting over. It was a journey and a building and a one, you know, one step at a time thing, but it was definitely God taking what was difficult in my life and the places I really began to meet him and now creating a a large shade tree for many. It must have been powerful for those women that you were ministering to, for them to find out that this wasn't just someone who wanted to do a nice thing, but someone who had experienced the same things that they were going through. Yes, for sure. For sure. And then another piece of that is too, my husband and I didn't have extra money to do this. We didn't have this big grandiose idea. This was just like the Holy Spirit leading us and 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 in taking things in my life, you know, and and bringing this vision forth. But one of the main things that we do is that we follow the model of George Mueller. If you're familiar, he was the father of orphans um, in the 1800s. And he, God had led him to pray and ask God for everything he needed and not to ask people. We, like the women who come to us and the families now, it's families now, don't have plan B financially, don't have ex- extra pile of cash somewhere, don't have, you know, we can relate to them in that fact too, that we are waiting on God to provide. We are trusting God for his provision. So for 18 years now, we have never fundraised. We have asked God for everything we've had and we give away from baby clothes to whatever we have there. And so all the things that we need to do what we do, vans, trucks, property, I mean, everything has been prayed in. And so if we don't have that, we also tell our clients, let's pray. We give away not just things, but the faith to just begin to trust God for those things because we too have to. We we started with no money. We started with praying in every dollar that would come in. Their rent wouldn't even get to us for our rent, for our building, our first two buildings until like the day before. I mean, it's just been that kind of a, a walk. And so that's something that the women and the families that come to us appreciate that we we stand with them, we pray, and we, we're leading them to the living water. I think there's been just a lot of comfort there. And I've been able to share my testimony with a lot of the moms who've come from domestic violence, starting over with their children and hiding and running for their life. And me being able to share that this place that they are now receiving these things, this is where I have come from. And now you're standing here and and I kind of giving that vision. How is God going to use you to comfort others as you've been comforted? And over the many years that you've been operating this ministry, I'm sure that there have been women and families who have been able to come back in a much better place and and be part of that ministry too. Oh yes, so our our volunteers are all people we've we've served. So they're a part of our family and even we work with we are located in one of the largest refugee areas in the whole country. So in where we are at Bridge of Hope is a 6.5 mile area and there's over 100 dialects spoken there. So I've met children that have arrived in U.S. soil from the Congo, Kenya, Uganda, Iraq, Afghanistan. These are families that were war-torn and um, come with a lot of pain. And that was another one of God's major plans was that Bridge of Hope would be a landing pad for these families. So, you know, we supplement the things that they need, We but we become a 
family to them, a place to land. And some of my kids that I've met when they first arrived here at two or three years old are now my main volunteers. And actually, a couple of them have become police officers. One's now one local police officer in San Diego. One's a police officer in Tennessee. And to see just the community, what's come about of community of people loving each other, caring for each other, walking with each other. And it is just incredible. People come back year after year. If I don't see them all the time, they always come back and say, thank you. We love you. Bridge of Hope's our home. And we see very clearly that Bridge of Hope is something that was birthed out of your own experience. I mentioned another ministry, and that is from under his wings. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that was also born out of your own experience. Tell me about that. Yeah. So my son, Nathan, who was my firstborn, who God had blessed me with to really turn my heart to him, to really cause me to surrender. He was in a diving accident in 2015. He was a adventurer, loved life to the fullest, was always in the water, an avid surfer, diver, loved anything nature. Anyway, he was down in Mexico and was about 20 hours down Baja in a place called Agua Verde, a beautiful, beautiful place. He'd been there many times. And he went down for his last dive of the day and he drowned. That was the most horrific, horrible, uh, life-changing. There's really no words to describe. But what happened too was my heart, I was ripped in two and was very confused because I talked about my spiritual adoption and my intimacy with the father. I could not understand. I just could not understand uh, why this would ever, ever happen. And I think I just must have had like some unspoken agreement, like in my mind that this type of tragedy wouldn't happen to me with my children, God taking my children or allowing that to happen. So first I was very just lost feeling and felt betrayed. Actually, the first year and a half was so hurt and just upside down. And, And then it was after that a year and a half later, I um, heard the Lord's voice again say, and it was his voice, I have compassion on you. I have mercy on you. Like, I see you and I'm stopping for you, Sherry. And when I heard that, I mean, I knew he was always there. But when I heard that, it was, again, that paradigm shift for me experience where I was like, okay, I believe you. I believe you. You didn't keep me from this, but you are walking with me in it and partnering with me now. I get you, you are with me. I began at that point, a year and a half later, to really partner with the Lord in the deepest, darkest place and walk with Him. From that experience and everything that I have gone through, I now sit with mamas who have lost children from all over, um, really all over the country, thank God to Zoom and different things. But this is a passion of mine to be able to comfort others the way God's comfort me. I can't, but hopefully I can host his presence to be able to do that because it is the darkest and most lonely place to be. Um, So that is where that was birthed. And not to mention my community is surrounded with much pain and suffering, lots of loss, especially with our war-torn refugee families. 
they've experienced so much pain and suffering. That is a big emphasis for me is to really um, bring that to my community, which we do and we are, and we're going to even be doing that in a greater measure this year, just again, to become that place of healing and that and, and, and a safe person and a safe place for people to process their grief. Grief is something that strikes us all, but I think we find it difficult to know what to do in that time for someone close to us. And you're part of a a local community, a, a local group of of Christians, as as well as those that surround you in the ministry. Were there those that just really didn't know what to say? Those that withdrew, or those who tried to give words of comfort that weren't really comforting in that deep dark time for you? Oh gosh, yes, <laughs> that you could write a book on just the things that people say and well intended, well intended, but. Um, there was a lot of things like, yes, all of the above people withdrawing, not knowing what to say. I mean, I remember being in a grocery store and somebody seeing me, me seeing them and kind of them turning the other way. Like, I don't want to talk to her. You kind of become people's worst nightmare to think that that could happen. Then there's those who quickly want to move you on through to he's in heaven. You rejoice. You know, he's this, he's all those comments people make about God wanted another angel, la, 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 blah, blah, blah. Those are so not helpful. I, they say losing a child is like walking around without your skin on. You're so raw. Uh, you're so overly sensitive to everything too at those the, for a couple of years. So you're very sensitive to anything. But one of the greatest comforts to me was my refugee community of people who came to my home even, um, made me food, but would stand and look at me put their hand over their heart and have tears running down their face and just say, sorry. It's the power of presence is the most powerful, impactful thing. We, those who us, of us who are grieving really can sense if somebody's present or not and really there. And they really don't have to have words. Nobody can tell you why something happened. Only God can do that. And we may not ever know until we get to heaven. So it's best just to be present and mindful of that and just pray that you can just bring a sweet sense of peace into the room for that wounded person and not feel like you've got to do anything or say anything or rush them through. That, that was a painful part. And I've sat with many groups where that becomes a topic of conversation is all the things people do say they shouldn't have said. <laughs> so, but again, we all know it's well intended, but it's it's it can be very hurtful. So, really, as you're saying there, that that gift of presence in that time is more valuable than all the words that we try and put together to try and give comfort. It's actually being there. Yes, definitely, definitely. Even if it's being there at the other end of the house, just being sensing, being aware bringing that calm, bringing, you know, and again, food is wonderful and, and blessing people with like practical things just so they don't have to worry. Those are great things. But I think it's the words and trying to explain and trying to all of a sudden, we like to fix people, you know, and we just can't, especially with something so traumatic as a death. It's just Jesus is the healer. And we just need to be present with the people we love and people we care about. In all the things that you're doing, you're reaching out in, 
in practical ways, you're you're showing your own presence to, to people in a variety of circumstances. And yet I get the sense that God isn't finished with you yet, that there's still great opportunities that await for you. Uh, do you still spend that time just listening to the, the still small voice of God to say, this is the next thing for you, Sherry? Oh, gosh. I am... <sighs> I cannot say enough about the secret place where that is so imperative for us believers to go and just have time alone with him in solitude. I think after my son died was when I really began that time where I think believe God led me to silence and solitude, which really wasn't a part of my Christian practice my spiritual discipline. I think it was more of kind of pray, get in your word, memorize your scripture, run out the door and get busy. Right. Uh, but now it's different. It's more, it spent a great deal of time alone um, with him. I've gone away numerous times to be alone, uh, to hear his voice. And I am in that place right now of feeling like I'm kind of in the middle, like something's coming, but I'm waiting and I have to wait and try. I just don't want to be out of his will. I desperately need him. And I'm more aware of that now than I ever have been in Bohor in my life. So yes, just that place of waiting and not wanting to step ahead, fill space, with something that's not him is just something that I feel like too, the times are so critical right now. We all have to just be in that posture of waiting and praying because each one of us are invited. Each one of us have a, has God has a plan and a purpose for us. He has created us and made us and predestined us for good works. What is that? And so I think too, we can have that can change. I think times change you know, it could be one calling at one part of your life and another whole calling in another part, but we have to sit and listen and be willing to wait on him and then obey. And that seems so opposite to what the world tells us, which is be busy, get things done, hit the next KPI, keep moving. And yet we can't do that. And it's not like you're just sitting back and doing nothing. There's so much that you're doing, but it's all based in this time alone listening for God's voice. Yes. Yes. Because I mean, we can't, I always tell them, I'm not going without you. If you don't go with me, I don't want to go because I have nothing. I have nothing unless you go. And that's the truth. I mean, you know, we may have, maybe even in the past, we can kind of coast through with what we had in our backpack, you know, a little bit. But I think now the bandwidth is definitely narrowed and we need, we need to be full every day, every day. We need to, yeah, because this world is so dark and we are the light of Jesus, city on a hill. And, but we need to keep that oil, you know, we need to keep that that full of oil, that lantern full of oil. And what is that? You know, that's time with him. That's the Holy Spirit. And we need to stay full. And that comes from, I believe, waiting on him, listening, being in the word, spending time, being quiet before him. Sherry, if there are people who are wanting to connect with you or keep abreast of the things that you're involved in, where is the easiest place for people to connect with you? Well, I have a website and I have a blog on there too, but they can reach me at sherrybriggs.com. And then they can always go to our website, Bridge of Hope SD for San Diego.org. That's a way 
And then um, also if they want to just kind of look at pictures and they have Facebook, we, and, and kind of get a little updates throughout the week where we are um, on Facebook, Bridge of Hope, San Diego, and make sure San Diego is included in that because there are other Bridges of Hope throughout the world, but we are only uh, us, San Diego. So that's important to know. Sherry, it has been a delight to speak to you, to hear the things that you're doing, and we will put links in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can easily find you. But thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.